0: If you have your copy of the Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the New Testament. Now we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can find the uh, Black Pew Bible in front of you again, and this time go to page 917, 917, where you'll find our, our text today. Uh, we're beginning a new series for the summertime. It's going to be a thematic series. We're going to look at one theme and trace it throughout the Bible through the summer months. Uh, We're looking at the theme of salvation, and we're going to highlight about 10 different passages of Scripture, that 9 or 10, that uh, really teach us what it means to be saved, according to the Bible's definition. And we're going to start tonight, or this morning, with a very powerful one. Uh, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 is one of my favorite passages. Uh, I I know some of you may remember, if you're keeping score, that I, I preached on this about a year and a half ago, as we were going through Ephesians But seeing as many of you are not keeping score, I figured that, um, and that's no slight on you, I just know, you know, I say a lot, so you you probably don't remember a year and a half ago, so I thought it would be good to revisit this passage with one of my favorites to get us a big picture of what salvation means to kick off our series. So let me read to you, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, or that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Wow. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. In the summer of uh, 2017, there was a, a TV series, I don't know if you saw it, on CBS that aired all summer long, and, then, and it came back the next summer in 2018. And the basic premise was this. There's a giant asteroid making its way to Earth. And it's so big, scientists have guessed, that when it hits the Earth and it seems like it will, it will destroy all human life forever. Every human being will be destroyed. That's the premise. That's good summertime TV, right? (laughs) And uh, in the story, there was this group of people that uh, were trying to gather together all the nations of the world, trying to unite them and all the various militaries and the scientists to try to figure out a way to take control of the asteroid so that they can avoid the inevitable. There was also, of course, this villain group that was trying to also take control of the asteroid for their own political gain, right? This is good summertime TV that you watch and then forget about. (laughs) So I'm sure even if you did see it, you probably don't remember much about it. Here's what I remember. The series was called Salvation. And so for two whole summers, uh, every time you turned on TV to watch baseball or whatever you were watching, you saw the ads, salvation, coming to CBS, salvation, 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 salvation. And I thought, wow, if only, if only America would come to understand salvation this summer, if only what the Bible says about salvation would become more apparent to people, it it would revolutionize not only our country, but the world. Well, that's what I want to look at this summer. Salvation is coming to Greater Hope Church. I want us to see that it's far more than a bunch of people getting together trying to avoid an asteroid. Salvation in the Bible is God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working eternally to rescue sinners like us in a way that's bigger than you probably even imagine everybody on the planet has some theory or some you might say theology or some doctrine of what salvation means Uh, it's not just that show on CBS but nearly every story you've ever read in your whole life is about salvation if you think about it, it's about how something's wrong and somebody has to come in and save everybody from it it's it's a salvation story it's written into our hearts as human beings but the very key question is this Do you think about salvation the way God wants you to think about it? Do you think about your own salvation in the way that God wants you to think about it and apply it to your own life? And so if you look at your bulletin, uh, we're starting this morning with this glorious view of salvation from Paul uh, here in verses 3 to 14, and there are three things that we want to see. They're very simple. First of all, we're going to see salvation defined for us today in verse 3. Uh, And then we're going to see salvation delivered by God in verses 4 to 14. And then finally, I want us to see salvation desired by God. I want us to get into the very heart of God Himself and ask, why does God want to save us? Why does He want to save anybody? All right, so let's first look at what salvation is. Uh, Verses 3 to 14, you you might remember, there's an off chance that you remember me saying this a year and a half ago, but... Um, Paul, in verses 3 to 14, writes one long sentence. It's just one sentence. Now look down at your Bible again. Look how long that sentence is. Uh, Your English teacher would not like it if you turned this in, kids. Uh, I'm sure Paul's Greek teacher did not like this. And yet Paul did not care. Because Paul was extraordinarily excited to get across what he had learned from God about how God saved him. Remember how changed a man Paul was? Paul could look back on a life where he was a violent man. I mean, he he was a criminal. Uh, Yeah, he was religious and he tried to cover it over with religion, but at, at the heart he was a hateful, violent criminal. And yet Jesus got a hold of him and changed him, and here he is wanting to describe what God told him about how that worked. And so he just doesn't have time to put a period in there. He just keeps on going and going and going in this run-on sentence for the ages that has in verse 3 the most beautiful headline that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Look at the headline in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, that's a headline. God, the God, did you notice how he said that? I love that, the God. Just in case anybody listening to him might have some other idea about God in their head, he's saying, no, this is, I'm talking about the God, the only one, the one who made heaven and earth, the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one Jesus spoke about, the one Jesus served, the one about whom his parables were trying to paint a picture, this God, the God has blessed us, us, people like Paul, people like the Ephesians, people like us sitting here today, human beings, yes, made by God, but human beings who have rebelled against God with the breath he gave us. We've rebelled. That's the us. And yet to that us, this God has blessed us in his son Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Now the word spiritual in the New Testament, which you see there in verse 3, most always should probably be capitalized, even though it's hardly ever capitalized in English translation. Uh, Many scholars have pointed this out, including a man named Richard Gaffin who's up at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He says, in every place in the New Testament except one, when the word spiritual is used it refers to what pertains to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't just refer to, ooh, spooky things. That's sometimes the way we think about with spirits, it's spiritual things, spooky, ooh. That's not what it refers to. It refers to what the Holy Spirit has or what the Holy Spirit does. And so, therefore, it should be capitalized. God the Father, through His Son, Jesus, has blessed us by His Holy Spirit With all these spiritual things that are found in heavenly places. Not just spiritual things that you and I can right now think of on earth. Things that we can imagine. But even things we cannot imagine. Things that are in heaven waiting for us. Think about that. There's a verse in the Bible that says, God has prepared for those who love him things that haven't even entered into the mind of man. They haven't even entered into man's mind. That means when I say imagine those things, I'm telling you to do something that's impossible. You can't imagine. And yet the Bible wants you to know God has prepared them. God has given them over to us as an inheritance through his Son and by his Holy Spirit. That's what salvation means according to the Bible. Salvation is not just saving the earth from natural disaster salvation is not just saving your body from sickness although that's important salvation is not just saving your mind from mental problems although that's important salvation is saving your soul forever and yes that will include the redemption of your body and all the rest at the resurrection but it's the soul that God aims at because it was the soul that was originally made by God to connect with him In Genesis, it says, God took dust and he made man out of dust, but then he breathed into that dust. And the word breath is the word spirit. God spirited his spirit into man. And the man, Adam and Eve, became a living creature, a creature capable of relationship with God, a creature capable of communion with the Almighty. And this is saying that we who have lost that communion because we sinned and because we do sin, we who have lost that communion have now been given it again through the work of Jesus Christ and by the almighty power of the Spirit applying that work to our lives. Salvation. Now, it's really important to have this big picture of salvation. And it's a little bit like this. When it's raining outside and you want to check when is it going to stop raining, what do you do? Well, today, I don't have my phone with me, but you pull out your phone and you get up Paul Delgado's app or whatever, whichever one you use, I don't know. And at first, when you pull up the radar, it's, very, it's usually zoomed in, right? It finds your location, and there it is, mulberry. And there, all you see is a blob over mulberry. And that doesn't really help you, does it? Because all you see is just a blob, and it doesn't tell you when the rain's going to end. It doesn't tell you where it's coming from or where it's going. So what do you have to do? Hit the button, zoom it out. And as you zoom out, what does it show? Eventually central Florida, eventually Florida, eventually the southeast, and there it is. You see it all. You see where it came from, where it's going. It'll even give you a future look of what's going to come next. And by having that wider angle vision of the weather, you can understand better what situation you're in. As Christians, when we don't have a really broad and rich view of what our salvation in Christ entails, when, when, when all we have is just a basically shallow idea of, yeah, I'm saved. It's just, I mean, it's just like, yeah, I'm saved. What does it mean to be saved? Well, I don't know. It just means being saved. I'm going to go to heaven one day. The shallower our view, the less equipped we are to actually live the Christian life the way we ought to. The broader, the more vast, the more rich our view. And we understand God has given us not just some spiritual blessings, but every spiritual blessing. That's what it says there. Everyone, not some, but all that God intends to give humanity, he has given you in Jesus. The passage goes on to say he's given you holiness. He's given you Adoption into his family because he wants you to be his kids he's he's given you forgiveness of your sins all your sins washed away He's given you the guarantee verse 14 of eternal life when you realize how rich it is. It will change the way you live It will it'll motivate you in a whole different way when you realize your problem goes beyond circumstances it'll make you less obsessed with circumstances when you realize that that problem that goes deeper than circumstances was one that only God could meet and he met it, that'll give you courage and encouragement even when your life feels a little bit down and discouraged by little things. Sometimes, isn't it true, we have tunnel vision. It can become very, very sort of singularly focused. I can. I can become very singularly focused on... This particular situation that I'm in right now and my problems and how I'm going to solve my problems rather than seeing, wait a minute, I'm a part of a story that God's been writing from the beginning where I had a problem I couldn't solve. I am separated from my maker. I don't have spiritual life. I have death. I'm headed for hell and judgment. And God came in through Jesus. And God sent forth his spirit and here I am saved salvation. Is that the way you think about salvation? That's that's the work we have before us this summer is to broaden and deepen our vision. Now secondly, I want you to see this morning how God delivers it. And this is the beautiful uh, method behind Paul's madness of writing this one long run-on sentence Starting in verse 4, Paul marches us through the beginning, the middle, and the end of salvation. How is a person saved? He tells us. He gives us a recap. Uh, how many people in here watch Sports Center? Yep, okay. Only a couple. I don't believe that. I think y'all do. Uh, I, I, I love Sports Center and I've, I've been a longtime fan of it. Uh, everybody who watches Sport Center knows this. There are clips from the game last night. It tells you what went on. Usually they, they follow the same pattern. They, they show you what happens at the beginning of the game, little clips here and there. They show you something that happens around halftime or right after halftime, and then they show you at the very end, right? They want you to see who was winning at the beginning, who was winning at the middle, who was winning at the end, because that's the drama of the game. Sometimes the winning team was losing at the beginning and at the middle, and only at the very last second did they phew, nail the shot and won. And everybody went berserk. Sometimes they were winning at the beginning. They started losing in the middle and then they came back at the end. Sometimes they were winning the whole time and it was just dominance. Either way, if you want to know what happened and how the game was won, you got to see beginning, middle, end. Paul does that. Notice in verse 4, he goes all the way back to the beginning. In fact, I would say pre-beginning. It tells us there in verse 4 that God did something before the foundation of the world to save people. What did he do? He chose us in Christ. God the Father chose. He chose individuals for salvation. He marked them as his own before the world was made, before they had been born, before anybody had been born. God set his love on them and made his choice. It says in verse 5 that he predestined us for adoption. And that word predestined is, is closely related to the word choose. To choose means, of course, God picked. He made a selection. Predestined means he decided about that selection what would happen in the end for that particular person. He fixed beforehand their eternal life. He made it certain, he planned it, he put it down in stone, if you will, that this person would be adopted as my child and be saved to the praise of my glorious grace. This is God the Father working before there were worlds exercising and setting his rich love and grace on people who did not deserve it now notice something it doesn't say God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world because we were holy and blameless before him did you see that in verse three it doesn't say God looked and he picked out the people that were a little less sinful than the other ones and he said I I choose you No, it says he chose us in him so that we would be holy and blameless. In other words, you're not chosen because you are holy. You're chosen in order that you might become holy. God's choice is a choice of grace. God's predestining purpose is based on the sovereignty of his own will, not on anything within us. Now you say, well, Stan, this is a mystery. How am I supposed to think about God doing something before the world was made? And I want to tell you, yeah, it is a mystery. And that's the point. The point here ought to fill you with wonder. That salvation did not begin with your choice of Jesus. Please don't think that. It is, it is important, I want everybody in this room tonight, this morning, to hear this. If you have not chosen to believe in Jesus, that is something the Bible calls you to do. You must to be saved. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But anyone who believes in Jesus, your story with God didn't begin in that moment. God does not respond to what human beings do of their own accord. God initiated God set his love, God chose, God predestined, God gathered in his own mind and heart his chosen people. And then it tells us what God did in the middle of the story. It says in verse 7, God through his son provided redemption. God sent Jesus into the world through his blood it tells us. That means that Jesus on the cross died an atoning death. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were this way. There was an animal that was sacrificed in place of the sinner. And the illustration was plain as day. I mean, I deserve to die, and yet God will accept this animal to die instead of me so that I can live and come into God's presence. That was what the Bible meant by redemption, atonement, through the blood. And here it is, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, Through his blood we receive forgiveness of our trespasses, verse 7. Through the riches of his grace, which, verse 8, he lavished on us and made us heirs of his inheritance, verse 11. Well, then it tells us what he did at the end of the story, and this is the end that is yet to come. There in verse 13, it says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed. And that seal became a guarantee that you would one day inherit everything that God has promised to every one of his children. It's a guarantee. When was the last time you sealed something? Think about it. It's a great illustration that Paul uses here, sealed, sealed with the Spirit. Oh, you seal an envelope, right? And kids, how do you seal an envelope? You lick it, right? And then you smack it together and it seals. Now, answer this, why do you seal an envelope? What's the reason for that? So it doesn't fall out. Yeah, that's pretty simple, right? You seal it to keep it secure. You seal it so that the mail stays inside. And it says here that the moment a person believes in Jesus for his salvation or her salvation, God's Spirit seals that person like an envelope so that at the end of their lives or or when Christ returns, it is a guarantee. It is not like a maybe. It's a guarantee that they will inherit everything God has promised and delivered to them. Don't y'all see it? Paul is taking us through some spiritual sports center here. He's running back the replay of his own salvation and the replay of yours if you're saved. He says, who was working and winning at the beginning of the game? Who was it? Oh, it was God. And look at the Father. Yes, the Father. Before the worlds were made, the Father was there with a love in his heart, a burning love. I want to have a people for myself. I want to have a people that I will adopt as my own children. They will be like me, but they will be so unlike me, and yet they'll be with me. Oh, God at the beginning of the game. Who is working and winning in the middle of the game, y'all? God, and there you see, him. there's Jesus. God made flesh, walking through this dusty world, laying down his life on the cross, being crucified and crying out, Father, forgive them in our place, rising from the dead. And y'all, who is working and who is winning at the end of the game? God. There he is, that moment. It says, when you heard the word and believed, he sealed you. And at the very end, that envelope is going to come unsealed by God. And there you're going to be presented with a full inheritance in his presence, nothing left out. Are y'all excited about that? Now, now look down, this is, this is important, this is kind of a trick question, but look down. At what point did you contribute to your salvation? What does it say you did? You might have to cross your eyes to see it. Because <laughs> it's not there. And in fact, it only tells us that we did one thing. And it's a very simple thing. It's found in verse 13. We heard... <laughs> Right? That's all we did. We heard the word and believed in him. Which ain't much, if we're honest. How much talent does that take? Uh, How superior do you have to be to other people? No, because to hear and to believe is simply this it's just this. Do y'all see what I'm doing? Open hands. The only thing I contributed, the only thing Paul contributed, anybody contributes, is their sin, which God takes away from their hands, leaving us with empty hands, which he then fills with his own grace and work. So that every human being, no matter who we are, no human being can say boastfully, I'm a Christian. I'm a spiritual person. I'm religious. I'm better than you. No Christian can say that. I mean, Christians do say that, but they shouldn't say that. They ought not to. They haven't really been watching the replay very closely if they say that because there it is, God the star, God the star, God the star. God the worker, God the worker, God the worker, and here am I. All I do is show up and say, oh, yes, Lord, give me some. Help me, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's it. Now, praise God for that, right? Praise God for that, because without that gospel being that wide and that great, you and I have absolutely no hope as sinners, none. Think about the Apostle Paul one more time. If Jesus had not met Paul on that road that day when he was going to kill Christians, what would Paul still be doing? Killing Christians. Hating people. Being hated. That's the way he described himself. I hated people and people hated me. What a testimony, right? Describe yourself, Paul. I hated a bunch of people and they hated me. But God came. And when he came, at first I didn't understand all this stuff. It took me a while to get all this. But as he came to me and began to show me, I realized he was already there. He had been there before the world was made. He knew my name. He wrote my name down in his book. And he came after me with his son and died for me. And there he sent his spirit. And I heard the word. And the scales fell off. And I was a new man. Look at the replay. It was never in jeopardy. It was never in doubt. It was all in the hands of God. What comfort. What motivation can come from that. And yet sometimes as Christians we want to kind of wiggle out of some of this. I mean I, I admit things like predestination and election and things like that are heavy things. And, and they're, they can be very confusing because they are so mysterious. And yet I want to urge you. Just let them stand as they are in the Bible. D- don't try to... Explain them so much that you end up deleting the effect of them If you over explain them You can end up with an election that really isn't an election at all Many Christians do believe that they believe basically God elected people for salvation because they first elected God Well that is an election that is not even an election And so therefore you've taken the comfort that God wants you to have knowing he chose you first completely out of the way. Just let it stand. Let it stand with all of its mystery and rejoice that God's grace is greater than your sin. Now lastly, and this is the last thing I want to look at today, and it'll be fairly brief. I want you to see salvation desired. I want us to look into, if we can be reverent about this, I want us to open up and look into the heart of God. Because Paul lists several things that tell us why God did all this the way He did it. Several reasons, motivators for God. I'm going to list them, and you you might want to follow along. I'm going to do them quickly. In verse 4, He says, God did it because He wanted us to be holy, He wanted people to be holy like He is holy. In verse 5, it says he did it because he wanted to adopt us as his sons. God wanted a great big family of human beings. In verse 10, it says God wanted to unite everything in heaven and on earth in Christ. He did not want the creation, the world, to be still full of disunity and separation and chaos. He wanted to bring it all back into order so he did it. In verse 14 it says he wanted us to acquire possession of an inheritance. It also implies in verse 14 he wanted to acquire possession of us too. As God says to Israel in the Old Testament, you are my portion and I am your portion. I am your inheritance, you are my Inheritance. I love you, you love me. That's what God wanted. In fact, in verse 4, it says that God did it all in love. It's because he loved people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. In verse 7, it says he did it because his grace was rich. And just like a rich person sometimes likes to give away or show off his riches to bless people with his riches so God in the richness of his grace wanted to bless his people and then finally it gives a last reason three different times in verse 6 it says he did it for the praise of his glorious grace in verse 12 it says he did it for the praise of his glory In verse 14, it says again, he did it to the praise of his glory. In other words, when you open the heart of God and you think about, why why did you save people like this, God? Why did you start before the foundation of the world? Why are you going to bring us into eternal life through Jesus? Why would you do this? And God says, on the one hand, I have an unfathomable love for sinners. That's what you see in in the heart of God, an unfathomable love for sinners. That's important, because that includes you. Do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how much he loves you? An unfathomable love. A love that did not have a beginning, before the foundation of the world, and if it didn't have a beginning, it doesn't have an ending. Mysterious love. Mind-blowing love. The kind of love that when Moses asked God, God, who are you going to show mercy to? God simply said, I'm going to show mercy to the one I'm going to show mercy to. Well, why are you going to do that, God? Because I'm going to show mercy to them. In other words, God's love is so amazing that God's love is the only explanation of God's love. Somebody here today may say, how could God love me? Why would God love me? And my answer to you is God loves you because he loves you. Leave it at that. Let him be God. Also, God has an unfathomable love for sinners. Do we, his people, have a compassion for those who are separated from God? That is at the very heart of our God. He loves to reconcile people to himself. Do we love that? Does our heart break? Over folks who are far away from God, who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Well, when you open God's heart, you don't only see that, but you also see a passion for his own glory. And this is something really profound. A passion for his own glory. God clearly wants to glorify himself forever. And there's probably something in you that thinks, hmm, I don't know about that. My mama told me not to do that. Don't glorify yourself. And my response to that is, yeah, your mom was right. You should not do that. And I shouldn't. Because we're not worthy to do that. There are things bigger than us, greater than us. So so for a human being to live their life to simply glorify themselves is nothing but selfishness and waste. But think about God for a minute. God, the infinite one. If God were to pick anything besides himself to glorify. Would that make sense? Is there anything higher than God? Wouldn't it be some strange case of God himself worshiping some idol if God made anything but himself the main goal of his work? God does all that God does, ultimately, for his own glory. Here's the question for us. Have we learned, are we learning, probably a better way to say it, are we learning to do what we do for God's glory rather than our own? If not, or if so, either way, there is nothing like the Bible's teaching on salvation to encourage us to do it. What the Bible tells me about salvation renders me boastless. I have nothing to boast about. And I really mean that. I have nothing to boast about at all. I'm left with one thing. Look at him. Wow. Look at what he did for me. Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection from the dead. Make a big deal out of him. Don't make me famous. Make him famous. Let me do what I can do to lift him up. In the heart of God, when you open it up and you think about this whole process of salvation that God has been working on from before the world was made, what you see is a love for sinners and a passion to glorify himself, which he is calling us to join He's calling us to approach the topic of salvation with a compassion for others who don't yet have it, and also to approach it with a self-effacing, humbling sense that the only reason I do have it is He's given it by His mercy, and my whole life does not exist for me, it exists for Him. Wow. Salvation.